0: Extraordinary Districts, the podcast about ordinary school districts that get extraordinary results. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. This is Season 2 of Extraordinary Districts, and we're doing something new. In addition to going to school districts that have expertise to share— We are talking with experts about the lessons we can learn from those districts. Today, we have a fabulous panel to talk about the Extraordinary Districts episode about Seaford, entitled Fast Improvement in Delaware. If you haven't listened to that episode, I hope you will go and listen, but now that you're here, stick around. We'll guide you through. I'm really pleased to say that Sonia Santelisis is here Sonia is CEO of Baltimore City Public Schools in Maryland, where she is leading the effort to improve student achievement in that city. I want to congratulate Sonia and Baltimore City Schools. Every grade level showed improvement from 2018 to 2019 on Maryland state assessments. I know Sonia is impatient and would have liked even more improvement, but I think it's important to notice when a whole district moves in a positive direction. I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, that before becoming Superintendent, Sonia was Vice President of the Education Trust, where she led our K-12 efforts. And before that, she was Chief Academic Officer in Baltimore and in Boston. She's been a teacher and a principal and knows an awful lot about how we run schools in this country. It's good to see you again, Sonia. It's great to be here, Karen. I'm really looking forward to it and really thrilled that I can be here with both uh, Sharon and Rick and learn along with uh, with everybody else. That's exciting. That's a real educator speaking right there. So Richard Collenberg joins us. Rick is director of K-12 equity at the Century Foundation and is one of the leading voices in the country advocating for school integration. He's the author of six books and the editor of a slew more. I'll just mention one. All Together Now, Creating middle, middle Class Schools Through Public School Choice. Thanks for being here, Rick.
1: Oh, good. I'm delighted to be here, Karen. Thank you.
0: And we're joined by Sharon Birmingham. For those of you who read my book, It's Being Done, Sharon was the fierce principal of Delaware's Frankfurt Elementary School, which isn't far from Seaford. She led Frankfurt from being one of the the lowest performing schools in the state, to being one of the top performing schools in the state. She is now the Senior Associate Director of the Delaware Academy of School Leadership, which means she coaches principals throughout the state. She's also a native of Seaford and taught there for many years, so she brings an intimate knowledge of Seaford and Delaware schools. Thank you so much for coming. It's great to be here. I'm really honored
2: to be here with such esteemed colleagues and to be a part of a discussion about my alma mater and um, to help people understand the transformation that's occurring there.
0: So each of you brings enormous expertise and experience that we're going to draw on for this discussion. Just to orient everyone listening, Seaford is in Southern or Lower Delaware. In 2013, Seaford was one of the lowest performing districts in the state. Two of its four elementary schools were among the lowest-performing schools in the state, and a third was about to be added to that list. That year, Dave Parrington was hired by the school board, and in the episode Fast Improvement in Delaware, I explore what happened since then to make Seaford one of the fastest-improving districts in the state. Today's panel is going to help me tease out the important elements of that improvement and help clarify what lessons educators, parents, advocates, and policymakers might want to take from that experience. As I said, no one was doing fabulously in Seaford back in 2013, but African-American students were among those doing the worst. And a longtime teacher shared with me what the prevailing sentiment was among teachers about the students who weren't doing well.
2: A lot of it would be, oh my gosh, these kids are coming not ready to read, and we're playing so much time to play catch-up, and they're never ready to, you know, do the next grade level, and they're just staying behind, 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 behind. So yeah, we we probably did play a lot of that on... On the kids, on the families, on the situations.
0: So I wonder, Sharon and Sonia, does this sound familiar? Are there educators who blame low achievement on children and their families?
3: Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest lifts. That I know we are doing in Baltimore, and I know it's happening in in other places as well, is really just shifting that mindset. And one of the best ways that at least we're seeing some lift on that is when you give teachers the information they need to be successful, then they're less likely to then default to blaming, blaming kids.
2: Absolutely. The first thing when I um, talk to new teachers or old teachers about what needs to be done to approve achievement in your school, the first thing they say, we need to get the parents involved. And they don't really look inward at uh, the strategies they're using or their mindset. And uh, so that's, that's a challenge that we have as educators to uh, get them thinking about what they can do to help the students that they're
0: working with, rather than simply kind of putting it all back on them. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is, they improve their practice, they'll see better results. They'll stop blaming the kids and their families. Is that is that I th- a fair? I think it,
3: yeah, and I think it is fair. I think that's part of it. I think, as Sharon referenced, you know, some of it is also mindset and being able to, you know, kind of confront what misconceptions are about particular neighborhoods, particular um, ethnicities and races of kids, particular socioeconomic um, backgrounds of young people. So that's part of it. but you know I agree with Sharon. when you when you actually help people look at what their practice shifts do to improve learning, it actually helps teachers feel more successful. and I don't think anybody gets up and goes to work every day wanting to feel like a failure.
2: As you know, Karen, when I went to Frankfurt, I was greeted my first week there with, you know, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken. And so I knew that I had to confront that very early on, and I had to address the staff and say, you either have to believe all students can learn or act like all students can learn, or maybe you need to find a job someone else. But as Sonia was saying, you really have to think in terms of mindset, because me just telling them that was not going to work. So I had to be able to provide opportunities that showed them that our students could learn And uh, that eventually changed their beliefs. And for some of them, it took about six years for them to really say to me, you know, I thought what I was doing was the right thing, but I've been doing a disservice to my students. So I had to change beliefs, and that took a while to be able to do that.
0: Six years. <laughs> sounds sounds painful. <laughs> um, so one point that needs to be made is that Seaford has had a long, difficult history of segregation. Although Delaware isn't always thought of as Southern, it still had slavery at the time of the Civil War and afterward was a Jim Crow state. Seaford and the rest of Lower Delaware stayed segregated long after the Supreme Court decided that segregation was unconstitutional in 1954. I explore that history in a special edition of Extraordinary Districts called the Milford 11, and I hope you'll listen to that as well. Seaford didn't attempt to integrate until 1962, when Carol Kellum and two other high-achieving African-American students were selected to attend Central Elementary School. Ms. Kellum talked to me by cell phone about her experience as a second grader. They didn't want to
2: integrate
1: the schools. We were escorted by police to the school, and people were on the sidewalks yelling, you know, go home, N-word, go
0: home. Central and the other schools in Seaford weren't fully integrated until 1967 after Lyndon Johnson's administration threatened to withhold federal funds from segregated schools. Rick, I wonder if you could reflect on how Seaford's history fits in with the history of school segregation and integration.
1: Well, unfortunately, Seaford's history is, is quite typical. This is one of the most shameful uh, passages in our nation's history, where there was the stirring decision in 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education, and that was met by massive white resistance, uh, particularly in the South, but in, in other parts of the country as, as well. And what makes it particularly painful is that we know now that when the country did get around to integrating schools in the late 1960s, early 70s, and through the 80s, we saw major gains uh, for African-American students in particular uh, from desegregation. And, and white students continued to, to perform at, at high levels. So it was really one of the most successful educational interventions we've had in our nation's history uh, but unfortunately, we then pretty much abandoned this, this success. Uh, and in the 1990s, uh, school districts started to resegregate again. And, and now we're, we're getting back to where, where we were uh, around the time of Brown.
0: Um, just to sh- follow up on the story of Carol Kellum and the integration of Central, Kellum's daughter, Chandra Phillips, went on to attend Central, and then taught there. Today she is assistant principal at Central, and we're going to hear from her in a little bit. But first, let's consider the situation Dave Parrington was walking into when he became superintendent in 2013. He had been an assistant superintendent in a nearby district, so he fully understood the history and context of Delaware schools. He spent the first year building his leadership team, hiring elementary school principals, and an assistant superintendent for curriculum. But in his second year, he did something I thought was surprising. He changed the attendance boundaries of the district's elementary schools. Let's listen to what he said.
4: I keep coming back to the term equity. It was about equity, because to us, our feeling was these are community schools, and these schools should reflect the community.
0: He had recognized that Central, which was the only elementary school that was not identified by the state as low-performing, was the school of choice for the savvier parents. Sharon, you you were there then. What did you think of that effort?
2: I really worried for Dave's job as the new superintendent in a new community. He was not a native. Um, He was an implant, as we call people from other places. And I really worried about... Uh, the reaction of the community, uh, the, teacher, the teachers and the parents of the students at Central Elementary were really married to that program, even though as uh,
0: the funding for the intersessions for year-round was no longer working. I, sh- I should say it, it had a year-round schedule, so that was kind of the, the way that parents were able to say, well, I would really like a year-round schedule, but the year-round schedule wasn't working for most working parents because it was hard to find daycare
2: and what what people what the savvier people found out is it's cheaper to go on vacation in an intercession than during the summer. And so they really bought into that. They liked the idea of working nine weeks and having off three weeks and having a choice whether to work in intercession. But as you said, uh, people who couldn't address the daycare issues didn't participate. Uh, So it became rather an elitist um, school in mindset, probably uh, more though than the... Than what it really was, but it was a mindset that it was better than the other schools. I also admired and thought Dave was one of the most courageous superintendents in the state of Delaware. I thought, how long is his contract that he get? Because, you know, the life expectancy of a, a superintendent is very short. Um, while I really worried about him, um, I knew it was
0: the right thing to do, and it was the time to do it for safer. Sonia, am I right that, you know, this is something that most superintendents would flee from?
3: Oh my God, yes. I mean, in, you know, in, in colloquial <laughs> conversation with district leaders, it's like one of the third rails, right? It's one of the things that you try to avoid if you can. And a, and a lot of it, you know, and it varies from community to community, but I think the heart of it is around this perception of high-quality schooling options as being a limited commodity, right? And so because there's a limit on how many high-quality schools a community might um, experience or actually have, then there's this rush to either protect what you view as your right, right? (laughs) Like, I already have a good school. I'm zoned to that school. I want to stay in that good school. Or I want entry to that good school. Most parents I talk to, you know, even in Baltimore City, they want... They want a quality school um, as close to home as possible, but they will travel um, to get young people, their children, what they need. And so that's part of the that's part of the tension that's there.
0: Rick, how often do you see the kind of commitment that Dave Parrington showed?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think Sharon and Stone, you're absolutely right. This is this is rare for a leader to take on segregation and and really try to improve opportunities for all kids by shifting boundaries. There are about 14,000 school districts in the country. Uh, They're really a a small handful that have taken proactive steps to to integrate uh, the schools. The the good news is, uh, although there is a small number, it's growing. Uh, I've been working with school district leaders in in New York City, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, in Pasadena, California, and New Haven, Connecticut, where they are taking steps to try to integrate uh, the, the public schools. So uh, this, this small number of districts is getting beyond uh, what we've seen is the kind of the traditional paradox, which is that there's a social science consensus that integration is good for kids and a political consensus that there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and, and so uh, this small number of districts, I think, are showing, showing the way. When, when I started at the Century Foundation, uh, there were two districts in the country that were looking at the socioeconomic status of students as a factor in student assignment plans, and, and now they are more than 100. Uh, so there, there is is some growing awareness of, of the issue and the fact that they're politically palatable ways to to address segregation.
0: So I should note that one of the keys to Parrington's success in changing the boundaries was that the school board stood firm. Is that is that right, Sharon? Absolutely. I was, because I was not used to this in the district in which I came, um,
2: so I was so pleased to see that the school board really supported him, and I, I thought, this is a good thing. This is certainly a change in Seaford, um, but it's a... To me, other school boards need to look at that and understand that the school leaders know what they're doing, and if you hired them, you need to trust them to do what's right for kids. So the board was behind him a hundred percent, and he made a lot of very uh, courageous decisions as he's been superintendent of. And I've talked to you about you know um, moving people around, changing people's positions that um, in could have created a lot of issues, but they didn't because the school board supported him 100%. So that school board support
0: was really key to his... Essential, yes. Okay. So meanwhile, so... Frederick, over at Frederick Douglass Elementary, new principal, relatively new, she had been there one year, she came in with Dave Parrington. Carol Levely had to deal with the fact that white parents were very wary of sending their children to the school that traditionally served African-American children.
2: I think we were known as the ghetto school, the drug school, the neighborhood, oh, it's not safe, I don't want my kid there, Blah blah blah, blah, blah. I can tell you, when I said I spent my whole summer Convincing parents that Frederick Douglass was an okay place for their kids to come. If I would have been tallying the race of the parents I was convincing, uh, 93.7% were definitely Caucasian.
0: Although Frederick Douglass was one of Seaford's low-performing schools, Levely said that the idea it was unsafe was ridiculous, and she spent a lot of time convincing parents of that fact. Rick? Can you react to that story?
1: Well, this is unfortunately uh, a familiar story. Um, much of the issue of integration obviously is is connected to, to white racism, and we're seeing it uh, in district after district where people have certain stereotypes uh, that they impose on schools, and even, even though a school may be perfectly safe uh, if it has a large... Uh, African American or Latinx population. Some people will assume, uh, wrongly assume, that there are, are major discipline problems in the school. So, so that's one 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 reality we have to face. Uh, I've I've worked with parents in Pasadena who have an important approach. Middle class parents who say, uh, just visit the schools. Uh, that they don't try to tell their their uh, friends. You know, you you have to. Try this element. Do you have to go to this elementary school? They say just visit, and then many parents are, uh, are relieved of those those concerns that they had as some of the some of the stereotypes are, are dispelled. Uh, I would say that in many districts, in order to get beyond middle class and white resistance, there needs to be some sort of sweetener, if you will, some some positive incentive. Uh, the The Washington Post had. An article this morning with a new poll suggesting that uh, uh, parents are are very open to the idea of magnet schools uh, as a as a way of attracting parents voluntarily into schools, and so that's that's one approach that many many districts have have taken. So a school might have an emphasis on uh, the Montessori teaching approach or, a, or have a dual language uh, immersion program. Uh, those kinds of things can can help. Get beyond these uh, these attitudes that that uh, that people initially have.
0: What's your reaction to that, Sonia?
3: No, I mean it's it, it definitely is a challenge. I think it's it's one where there is a configuration of both race, ethnicity, as well as socioeconomic status. So one of the, I remember one of the exercises <clears throat> that we did. in Baltimore City was we looked at uh, which schools actually have the highest achieving African American students and people's opinion going in was that the data was going to show um, one of our schools with the largest um, and again this is relative to Baltimore but one of the schools with the with the largest uh, white and upper socioeconomic school was the one that had the highest achieving uh, African-American middle grade students and that was not the case it was actually a majority African-American school that had uh, students who were performing at the highest levels and so even in that intersection right, there were african american parents rushing to get their children into this school that was perceived as being a quote better place for them to be and when you started talking about the data you know who actually has the attitudes that are actually moving young people and seeing them as being gifted and and capable they weren't in the places that they thought and so i think sometimes even in discussions of integration some of the deals and the bargains that we make it, um, actually are, are unfounded on who's actually uh, yielding the results. So this piece about perception and actually being able to have frank conversations, which a lot of times we don't want to have, um, but we have to, as, we, as we've seen in this example, you have to have people who are courageous enough to be able to have those conversations and be able to dismantle some of what people's perceptions are.
2: I think um, the interesting thing always was to me that uh, Fred Douglas was always perceived as the black school, Uh, even though it's across the river from the hospital and uh, across the river from a rather elitist senior citizen um, community. Um, So the perception was there because there's probably four blocks of African-Americans live predominantly in that area. So it was interesting that Fred Douglas always had uh, teachers of the year come from that school and uh, was not known for having a lot of issues in the school. And Carol really did a phenomenal job, I think, in really um, that first year changing the mindset of the teachers and working very hard to make sure that the best teachers were in our school and changing the mindset of people. And um, but that was that was really kind of interesting. And I think the whole name, Frederick Douglass, when you're from, southern Delaware or some of the more um, segregated areas, okay, why do we want my child to go to a school that's named after a, an African American?
0: You know, so one thing that really struck me when I was down there, Carol Levelly said that it was always called Fred. And she, at a certain point, it kind of dawned on her what that meant. And she said, now we're always Frederick Douglass. And th- and even she, when she's talking about the school when it was low performing, she she'll sort of slip into it was Fred, but now it's always Fr- Frederick Douglass. Uh, just this one little tiny, and to me, I can't even imagine calling Frederick Douglass Fred. You know, what mm-hmm. I mean? mm-hmm. <laughs> right? like, he is Frederick Douglass, and yet from that area, it, his name carries a certain resonance uh, for for a lot of people in a lot of different ways, right? Absolutely. yeah, so that was Karen, it was if something I, if that I can yeah. jump in. Yeah, I, I
1: just want to uh, echo uh, what Sonia and Sharon are saying that uh, clearly there are lots of examples of uh, majority African American schools that are extremely high performing where, where students do do quite well. I think uh, at the same time, when you uh, when you have high concentrations of poverty, it becomes much more difficult. So, concentrations of poverty when students are of of, of any race um, are not not generally good for kids. And Karen, of course, you've you've highlighted a lot of great high poverty schools that are also high performing, um, but uh, but I think the evidence suggests they tend to be the the exception to the rule, and. Uh, and if you look at the National Assessment for Educational Progress in Math, uh, low-income students who are in economically mixed schools are as much as two years ahead of low-income students who are in, in high-poverty schools. And so, uh, so we, we, uh, we want to celebrate uh, schools that have High poverty uh, rates and and are successful, um, but also recognize that uh, system wide we probably don't want to go about uh, creating high poverty schools um, because on average they're they're less likely to be good for for students.
0: Uh, one of the ways that. Parrington made these boundary changes more palatable to the community was to split up the schools so that two elementary schools now have kindergarten, first, and second grades, and two have third, fourth, and fifth grades. Although this was done largely because it made it easier to draw the demographic lines, Parrington said that over time, he realized there was an instructional benefit. And in the podcast, this is where I sort of change from the structure to the instructional uh, questions. We're going to listen to Dave uh, Parrington now here.
4: In other words, you have more grade two teachers working together uh, that can have those types of deep discussions about instruction. Uh, That's important for improvement.
0: So Chandra Phillips, the assistant principal at Central Elementary, gave an example of what he meant by that when I talked with her. Let's listen.
3: If kids take a test and only 25% of your kids pass and 75% of mine pass, Like, we had to get over the hurdle of even putting that information out there so that you would be like, they shouldn't be looking at my, you know, I mean, I see your 25%, but instead of me going, hmm, 25%, we had to develop a culture where you go, ah, 25%. Hey, Chandra, you got 75%. Like, girl, what you doing in your class? It's that kind of communication because if something's working – You should be willing as a teacher, as a reflective teacher, to be like, I need help. I'm throwing in my towel, and I need help. Karen, can you help me? And we do that in our PLCs.
0: So PLCs refers to professional learning communities, structured structured conversations among teachers. Sonia, I wonder... How what Chandra Phillips said strikes you as a superintendent. Do you think about teacher conversations as important to school improvement? And if so, what are the conditions they need to have those conversations?
3: Yeah, I was actually beaming uh, as I was listening to the excerpt and thinking, oh my God, if I could, like get that conversation at scale um, you know across you know one hundred and fifty seven schools in Baltimore, it would be you know, a, a holiday. Um but I think part of, you know, for me, that really is the crux. Um, it's a real crucible, right? How are teachers, um, as as Chandra des- described in the, you know, in her, in that particular clip, how do teachers have the space, the safety, and the knowledge and accountability to actually ask that kind of question of their practice? And what I think is interesting is, you know, we started off talking. You know, uh, Sandra and I started talking um, earlier about this idea of mindset. That conversation for me reflects a mindset shift, right? We've gone from saying, oh, we have the kids in public housing, oh, we have the kids down here, to wait a minute, there is this differentiation. And we know, and you know this. Karen, as well as I do, but within the research, that the the difference between achievement between classes is actually greater than the achievement between schools, and that kind of conversation that we heard there is actually bringing that to light. The condition is, and you know, this is something I have to work with our principals on, the condition is, what do you do when a teacher is willing to take that kind of deep look? Is there the support there? Is there the information for practice change? Do you get what we call safe space for practice? You know, No, you don't get five years to practice and try to get it right, but is there a place where a teacher can say, actually, that's new information for me. I need to shift. And know that that is going to be a welcome shift that comes with support and feedback. So that's
0: a real kind of culture of trust, as, as Tony Brake, uh would, would say, right? And, and creating that tr- culture of trust, that is, that's a hard lift, right? So uh, I just want to add one other thing. We have
2: to provide the time. It has to be within the school day. It can't be before school, after school, and exactly as you said, you've got to create that cultural culture of sharing. And and I just heard one uh, yesterday from one of the principals. The expectation is that everybody brings something to the professional learning community and shares, and so that you're creating that trust that I'm going to share uh, my materials. It's all about the collaboration because we. None of us is smart as all of us together. And so once we can um, get teachers thinking in terms of that and we're making your life easier, we're working smarter, not harder. And um, But I think once they realize that they have the time, they have the structure, it has to be monitored and you have to give teachers feedback on how it's working, I think, and um, it's To me, it's the most valuable thing that we can do in education is to provide teachers that time to have those conversations and be able to say, I, I don't know how to do this. I need help.
0: Yeah, when, when she told me that, I just thought, this is the most perfect example mm-hmm. of what needs to happen in schools in order to improve. So now I want to talk a little bit about reading instruction The situation in Seaford was really tricky. The year before Parrington came, the district had spent a lot of money on a new textbook series, and teachers had spent a year trying to retrofit it and make it workable. The assistant superintendent for curriculum was faced with what to do with something he knew would not help all of Seaford's students learn to read. Sonia, as a current superintendent and a former chief academic officer, I imagine you... You kind of resonated to that. Oh, problem. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> my my sympathies went out. Um, no, it it is, it, and particularly
3: around reading, which is so volatile. Um, it's been allowed as a as an area within the education community to bounce back and forth between extremes that it never should have, quite frankly, been allowed to. Um, you know, the science is very direct. Uh, we know just based on best practice and student achievement i mean that's where the big the big shift is but it is still very volatile and i can even say you know, even in some of the experiences in Baltimore, like it again, reading was another third rail, right? Reading was something you don't touch, and you know, you upset folks. Um, you know, I have longstanding professional friends that I have great regard for, and when you start talking about reading and your shifts in reading, their eyes get big, and when you say actually, you know, sacrilege, what, what do you mean? We've been doing guided reading for years, and we did have some kids read um, that that takes a different kind of courage and it takes a different kind of tenacity and you do have to be armed with the knowledge so um but but at this stage i will say it it is gaining momentum i think it's easier to make the shift now than it was even 10 years ago i think that there there's a momentum parents are better equipped i mean i remember even as a parent and i was the cao at the time the chief academic officer and needing to do decoding phonics fluency at home <laughs> on Saturdays. You know, and I was the chief academic officer. And, you know, my kids will tell you now, yeah, we, we had to do our phonics at home with mom, right? And we did our fluency. And at wow. some point, yeah, at some point, you, you have to just say, this isn't right for kids. And I will tell you that my experience as a mom Informed as much of my tenacity around this as as even as an educator, because if I had to do all of that, then it is unfair. Parents should not have to wonder um, whether they have to make up time, carve time out of their schedule. And you know, we all know we've got parents who are working two or three jobs just to keep sustenance going right within their house. The the, the public needs to be able to have confidence that we are working. Uh, with, again, what we already know, but, but reading is, is another third rail that if you don't have the courage to grab it, it will be your undertow.
0: So the assistant superintendent for curriculum ended up slowly introducing a new reading program developed by a professor at the University of Delaware who had provided him and his previous school with a lot of training in early reading instruction in that phonemic awareness, phonics, decoding, um, That program's name is Bookworms. Sharon, you're a fan of Bookworms. Can you tell us why? I'm a fan because it works, (laughs) and it's research-based.
2: And Asanya said, when you look at what needs to be done in literacy instruction, it has the key pieces. There's English language arts, there's shared reading, and there's differentiated instruction, which really focuses in on that phonics piece. Um, It has a routine. It will take a mediocre teacher and make them effective or highly effective. Um, It is a scripted program, which some teachers don't like, but the questions, the higher order questions are embedded in there, and... um, so it, it just is a program that works. The books are phenomenal. The kids, uh, during the shared reading, they use echo reading. They use choral reading. The teacher reads to them. And then there's always the book that's on grade level they're reading. So nobody's reading a book that's below grade level because they all know they're reading a book below grade level. Um, so they're reading a book on grade level to get that rich vocabulary. And then when the teacher reads the book, the book is above grade level So they're getting a very rich vocabulary, which many of our students don't have. I have spent a lot of time reading the books because I love them. Uh, I finished reading Tangerine just last week. Um, They're all high-quality books. They're fiction. They're nonfiction, and as you know, in many of our schools, don't do a lot of teaching social studies and science, so they're getting content information as well. And as you know, I've seen it work. I've seen it work in Laurel this past year, and I've seen it uh, work in Seaford and in some of the schools in the northern part of the states.
0: So, so Sonia, you adopted uh, in Baltimore. You adopted wit and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just talk about like the Thought process that goes into adopting a reading program? Well, and I think, you know, Sharon
3: re- referenced um, a, a number of those points that I think were similar with us. We had the benefit of having undergone a curriculum audit, which was very helpful um, because the audit showed kind of where those gaps were and not just in kind of traditional areas within the ELA curriculum, but also in uh, the the development of content knowledge with, with our students. And so it became an opportunity for us to educate teachers in what, what are we finding? What do we know about the role of content knowledge? Things that they had not heard before. And so that process we used as an opportunity to frankly educate All of us educate school leaders, educate teachers. And then as part of that, we also relied very heavily um, on ed reports because of their attention to standards, because um, they were teacher-reviewed, which bought us, frankly, very quickly credibility with teachers. So when they realized, you know, in full disclosure, I sit on the board (laughs) of ed reports, but, um, but what really sold teachers was that other teachers had reviewed the material. And so being able to build that into Our procurement was a wonderful way to just sift out all of the programs that frankly don't meet that criteria. And it made it easier so that when we got down to the last two or three, I was fine with whatever they selected because all of the final choices met that criteria. Uh, the, the early, um, reports back from Wit and Wisdom, you know, initially people were a little nervous and I will say getting back to this expectation piece, you know, there were some teachers who were concerned. They said, this is way above where our kids are reading as Sharon referenced, right? This is not just read at your level, <laughs> your low level for the next two years. It was, you know, seventh graders. I walked in and they were, they're reading Canterbury Tales, right? And then we have young people, um, you know, reading excerpts um, from, you know, what I would call key texts in the African-American canon. And so for us, the diversity of the text, the, the fact that content knowledge was being built. I had a, a parent of a second grader in one of our schools saying, oh my goodness, my second grader's coming home with all this information about the ocean and she can't stop talking about it, right? She's just engaged. And so this idea that access to content access to solid science-based reading instruction is in fact a civil right. It is another equity issue. And it's one that we have skirted. Who are the kids we experiment on, right, with kind of wonderful things that make lovely literature in education, um, but aren't science-based. And so it really has, we've had a number of teachers, our teacher of the year has been, um, Kier Butts has been an amazing advocate. You know, he posts some of his student work online and we'll say this is what my children are are writing right now and this is what they're able to do and so there's a real momentum When we involved teachers, uh, we really had high leverage from ed reports. Again, that got us credibility. The audit for political purposes was fabulous because it said we do need to make a change. And we really are trying to leverage that. And and I will say we have not had a lot of pushback. Um, Most teachers are really um, buying into it. We just need to follow up with supporting the kinds of conversations that Sharon was referencing earlier in professional
0: learning communities. So so that that well and Baltimore has started to see some real gains across the grades. I I can't say how significant I find it that the gains were centered in the middle school. Yeah. That's a really hard place to (laughs) improve. No, it was. And and, And
3: you're right that a lot of the middle school teachers were the ones who were most concerned because they said, you know, again, Canterbury Tales, we've got kids who are reading three, four years below. And that combination with the questions, as Sharon referenced, I think it's, it really showed teachers uh, what what our young people could do. On the early end, what it showed us was the real need to get our early grades teachers the reading science. And so within Wit and Wisdom, um, it's paired with foundations. And so one of the things that we had to invest in is really building up not just the knowledge of that program, but what does the science say about early reading? And so we've partnered with a couple of organizations, um, Letters and some other folks, to be able to get that. And I talk to teachers now who are like, oh, my God, if I had known this five years ago, 10 years ago. And some of them have really challenging emotional reactions, like, I can't believe what I did to kids. I mean, and clearly it was not out of you know, malicious intent. It was just a lack of knowledge. And the number of teachers who say, I just didn't know
0: that's one of the huge scandals it's it's an ongoing long running scandal of the education field that teachers have been told develop your philosophy of reading instruction instead of actually being given the knowledge and skill of how to teach reading we could probably go on about that for quite a <laughs> while but but just to circle back to seaford bookworms has uh Uh, seemed to help. Uh, Seaford's made enormous progress, and I'm just going to give a tiny bit of data. In 2015, when Delaware began using new assessments, so we can't look before then, just 38% of Seaford students were considered proficient in English language arts compared to 52% in the state. In 2019, this is brand new data since I even recorded the the episode on Seaford, 53% of both Seaford students and Delaware students were proficient, meaning Seaford has caught up with the rest of the state. And the improvement is concentrated in the lower grades, which is where bookworms is. So for example, 64 and 70% of third and fourth graders in Seaford are proficient compared to just about half in Delaware. But math has also improved over the same period of time. So to me, the fact that Seaford has improved in math as well as reading means that as helpful as bookworms may be, improvement is not just about a program. And um, here's what Dave Parrington said it was about.
4: Life itself is trial and error and correcting it and then moving ahead and keep working on it. I am talking about scientific method. I'm I'm just saying let's reintroduce something that we know works and we know in the rest of the world and in the other disciplines it works and it can work for us.
0: So Sonia and Sharon, what's your thought about how he thinks about improvement?
2: I agree. I, I, as when I was a principal, I always was looking for what is working, where is it working, and how can I take that and implement it in the context of my school and, and my my students and my teachers. Um, you may have to make a few adjustments, but I think I think it is trial and error. Um, And by looking at what other people do or looking at the research and then trying it and then making adjustments to it is just part of what leaders do and what teachers need to do. Uh, That's what uh, Madeline Hunter from a long time ago used to say, teachers make decisions, thousands of decisions within the course of a class. And same thing as an administrator, you have to make decisions about what's working, what's not working, and do they need more professional development? What do they need so that we can make sure that this is working? Because it's all about the research. We know what works in reading and math instruction. We just have to make sure and give the supports to our teachers to make sure they're able to implement.
3: No, and I I, I couldn't agree more. I do think that this, this idea of... Um, of iterating practice, right, of making the shifts in real time quickly that are informed and grounded in what I call kind of the boundaries of what we know from the science, right? So we're not kind of going off in the lily fields to your earlier point, Karen, of like, what is your educational philosophy? Well, actually, that's immaterial right now (laughs) because I just, I I need you to know how to teach, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, this idea that everything is kind of a packaged mix and you just add water and stir is also equally inaccurate. And so I think part of what what Sharon was saying about the ability to, to test and what you know what we heard from Dave in that clip was you need you need folks who who understand that. And I liken it, even though people don't always like, I like it to like software design, right? It's you have a team of people, they have deep content knowledge. So they're not just whimsically kind of picking things, but they also realize that the situation and the context is going to change. It's not the same in every school. When we talk about concentrations of poverty, when we talk about past experiences in Baltimore, you know, h- how do we address trauma in a way that still enables young people to access? Those are all contextual pieces. And so the ability of folks to have deep content knowledge and then iterate in a system that makes it safe to do that, I think,
0: is is really what we're trying to trying to target. Well, and I, I think what Dave Parrington would say is key to that is school leaders, right So the school leaders are absolutely key, he says to school improve uh, to district improvement and what he looks for in a school leader is a deep commitment to equity, which he defines as ensuring that every single student succeeds. and I'm wondering, is that easier said than done? you know he has six schools he has four elementary, two secondary. You have 157, I think you said. (laughs) Do you have to think about the issue of school leadership differently, or is it the same issue just at a different scale? I think it's the same issue at a different... It's more the same issue at a different
3: scale. Um, You know, so we have, for example, this year we had 10... We had 10 schools who over the course of the last four years had made flat five plus gains, percentage point gains for kids, which is considered for PARC um, above average gain, right? So those- I'm are, just going
0: to interrupt. PARC is the assessment that Marilyn yes, gives. And yes. It's, uh, thank you right, for, sorry. for
3: pulling me out of my education ease. That's- <laughs> Thank you, Karen. This is why you need other people. Um, so- you know, we look at those schools, and one of the things we're asking is what are those schools doing? Uh, the other piece that we have started doing is for each principal, we are asking what is their trajectory, right? Is this a principal who is close and just needs a different kind of coaching, needed to have foundational curriculum in place, needed some additional assistance? Um, is it somebody who's on the cusp? And the school's getting ready to break out. And in some cases, it it is a counseling out. I mean, it is just a, this is not, you know, the equity core is not there. And, you know, I think it's okay. I try to talk in terms of match, right? Like, is this a good match for you. Um, is this school a good match, right, within, in terms of community? And is Baltimore City a match? Um, you know, we have school leaders, uh, our good ones, are, like they eat the equity stuff for breakfast um, they want. I. You know, we had one of our principals who had done really great turnaround work, was one of the only Um, turnaround schools in the state of Maryland that had actually made improvement with uh, the additional federal funds, even though nationwide we didn't see a lot of that. And I tried to pull that principal in to be a principal supervisor, uh, Mark Martin at Commodore, and his response to me was, I'm not ready to leave my school. And instead, he took four of our chronically underperforming schools. We handpicked the principals, the school leaders for those schools. Um, Everyone... Applied back. We had teachers doing the review and hiring process from the higher performing school for staff. Um, We invested a lot of the school improvement money in developing the culture of staff working together. And those schools are some of the schools we're seeing the fastest gains. And so our our real our real challenge is scaling it across 157 more so than you know now we've got to do something different over here or there and and that to me is proof that it's it's got to be political will but it also has to be a commitment to the support and the resources that's needed
2: equity is a real concern of mine cuz i work in all 19 districts in the state of Delaware So I see a lot of haves and have-nots because our schools are supported by local referendum funding. So some are able to have a higher tax tax base than others. I see students that are working in state-of-the-art schools where it's one-to-one Chromebooks. The schools are beautiful, and then I also work in some schools that – it should be an embarrassment to the district that children are even going in there where the bathrooms and everything. So there's uh, an inequity in physical plants. There's an inequity in the teachers. Many of your high-need schools have a real problem in recruiting and retaining teachers to work there. And um, so it's a real issue with me about the leader making sure that they're selecting and that they're an advocate, both Statewide and nationally for schools, so if the physical plan is not what it should be, what should the district do to make sure it's ready um, to go at the beginning of the year? Um, we had some schools in Delaware that started two weeks early uh, before the other schools to give kids extra time. The schools were not ready. Um there were desks in the hall. There were boxes everywhere. The water fountains were not working. So when you, when you think about equity of what message does that show to students that you're already asking and telling you've got to go to school two weeks longer than anybody else. I just talked to a friend of mine, and I'm getting more passionate about this all the time, uh, about early programs. I have a friend who is sending her child to a daycare. He's six months old. He's getting yoga. He's getting Spanish immersion. He's getting um, active play activities. And they have uh, one-to-one meetings with the uh, teacher to say, this is what you should be doing. And this is the book we're reading this week. And this is the book we suggest you read at home. And I have another friend whose child is in a home daycare. And the child is set. Before a television, big screen, most of the day. So the inequity even starting at the beginning of what we do for children um, is boggles my mind. And so looking at, as you said, the leaders and what the leaders can do to be an advocate. So how do we get those early programs into our school? Very fortunate Indian River that uh, Susan Bunning and Lois Hobbs both um, got our three and four-year-old English second language learners uh, in for Project Village, so that they were learning language early and were exposed to reading
0: and writing and authentic play. So, um, and I, I just want to say, I was in one of the kindergartens. Oh my gosh, <laughs> they're like writing essays about dinosaurs. Beautiful. Yeah, amazing. It's just amazing when you have those
2: early interventions and, and just the whole equity. How can we make this
0: available for all students? So, so Rick, you're someone who advocates for integrated schools. Have you thought about the kind of school leadership that's necessary to help integrated schools be successful?
1: Yeah, it's it's incredibly important to have a a strong and enlightened leader in an integrated school. Uh, there's lots of evidence to suggest it's not enough simply to throw kids of different backgrounds together and, and expect everything to work out well. We have to have leaders who make sure that all kids are, are honored, that all parents are honored, uh, that everyone has something to contribute to the school. But there is um, this, this notion in the past that uh, low-income students or disadvantaged students didn't have enough, much to offer. And so uh, one researcher talks about the idea that every child brings a little suitcase of experiences with them. And in the old days, people said to low-income students, students of color, close that suitcase, that's not relevant. Uh, Now the best leaders and teachers recognize that everyone has something to offer. Open that little suitcase. Uh, Show us what we can learn from, from you. That's a very different approach than than we had in in integrated schools. Oftentimes in the 70s, uh, in the 80s, the, there wasn't that appreciation for the ways in which all students can can contribute. Uh, another important issue for a school leader is is teacher diversity. And I know Sonia has been a leader on this issue that uh, we have to make sure that the uh, students see themselves in the in the faculty. And so, a school leader who prioritizes making sure that that the faculty uh, are are also um, uh, diverse is is important. And the last thing I'd mention is is the importance of making sure that our schools don't uh, integrated schools don't then resegregate at the classroom level. Uh, at the Century Foundation, we did case studies of two districts, um, Champaign, Illinois. Uh, and Stamford, Connecticut, and both had really good integration programs in terms of making sure that the school, the schools were uh, desegregated. But then Stanford made sure that the classrooms were integrated as well. And Cham- Champaign didn't do as good a job in that. And you saw as uh, the results were, you know, were, were stark. Stanford students did very, very well. All subgroups of students continued to improve, uh, whereas in Champagne, Champagne, they didn't see the same, same results. So having that strong leader who understands the value of all students uh, and makes steps to make sure that the schools, school classrooms are integrated is, is essential.
0: So it's been my contention that if schools successfully help all children to read and do other stuff, but reading is so, so key, parents will be more willing to send their children to integrated schools. Is that like wishful thinking or is there some evidence for that?
1: Well um, I, I think I think that's true uh, that parents do look at uh, test score results. I mean they study these uh, data pretty carefully, many of them and so uh, a school that's seen improvement uh, could um, could attract more more middle class parents who are the ones who in our society have choices of whether to where they're going to send their kids to school. Uh, but having said that I, I guess I think it's important to, to do both strategies, to have a proactive strategy to integrate the schools, alongside a strategy of, of uh, school improvement uh, that will then bring about integration. Uh, that you, you have to do to do both, and that's what, what Seaford did. Um, I think that's part of why they were so successful is that they had uh, this great new reading program and also efforts to reduce. Uh, stark segregation by by race and socioeconomic status. So I think both those approaches are important. Does that make sense to you,
3: Sonia? No, it it does make sense. And and I would just uh, also add that I I also I also think that you know, if we call them middle-income families or professional families, are also looking for the other kinds of rewarding learning experiences, right? They don't want to climb it with, frankly, a strident discipline culture. Like, they don't want their kids yelled and screamed at all day. Um, They want to know that it's not just about the reading and the math, right? That is absolutely, in in, in a lot of their minds, that's foundational. Like, why should we even be having that discussion? But like, they want to know that their young people in elementary school have access to science experiences, art experiences, uh, play. And so this, the, the idea of an enriching education should be what we want for all young people. And in Baltimore, we have seen schools that can provide that, you do have middle class families, you have white families who are willing to take a chance, who are willing, I think, um, I can't remember those you or Sharon said earlier about just come and visit, or maybe it was Rick who said, you know, just come and visit. Uh, when they visit, when they see um, that, wait a minute, this is, this is more than just kind of trying to corral kids, <laughs> you know, for a whole day, but it's actually real education. I have found that most parents
2: will take a, will take a chance. Is it, have you seen that also, Sharon? Um, what I've seen, you know, Delaware has choice. So as long as a school has the capacity to take on more students, um, parents are allowed to choose. They must get their child to a transportation point, but they're allowed to choose another school. And so there is a lot of choice going on in Delaware. And that's inter—that's across districts across as districts, well as within districts. Within districts and across districts. Um and so also Delaware has many charter schools, and some of the charter schools are what I consider public-private schools because what they have done is they've tried to resegregate, and they do resegregate students. Um, and while they don't overtly, because you, there is a process for selecting them for the charter schools, while they don't overtly select children of one ethnicity or one economic or one academic background. um, They have processes in place which weed out students that they don't want. Um, And so um, what has happened in the city of Wilmington is there's a lot of segregated schools. And um, this in itself is, you know, parents- have choices, but a lot of times they haven't visited those schools, and if you read the comments that they put online uh, about the school and that great schools where they can talk about the schools, they're very, um, they criticize the school, but then they keep their kids in that school because they had a choice to select that cho- that school. So it has created a problem, especially for Seaford at the middle school and the high school level because we all know middle schools already have their reputation of what they're like, even if they're a private middle school, they have their, you know, parents are concerned about their children there. But with Seaford, they have, at the middle school and high school, kids are going to Sussex Tech, um, a, traditionally a vocation, vocational school, which is uh, fortunately now going back to that, it had turned into a really academic uh, technical school, and now it's going back with a new superintendent to more vocational. Um, but they also have uh, a charter school in the area that is has international baccalaureate, and um, a lot of the parents in the area are even sending their students there instead of to a very elite private school um, several miles away. So um, it does, you know, just giving people choices, But a lot of times the people who know about the choices um, are more informed than other people. So people who their child may benefit from being in that program don't always know that that's available for them or don't know how to make the transportation um, possible for their child.
0: Yeah, so Chandra Phillips in in the podcast says Delaware went from segregation to integration and now it's going back to segregation again partly because of Sussex Tech, right? Rick, Sharon's talked about the choice policy. From your standpoint, how does that play into the conversation about integration and segregation?
1: I, I think Sharon raises a great point. Segreg- uh, school choice can be used to either segregate or to integrate. Uh, I'm, one researcher said school choice is like electricity. You know, it could, it can, can warm your home and uh, turn on the lights, or it can electrocute you. Uh, right either either it's it's got both sides to it uh, and so unregulated choice of the type that uh, is common in Delaware and, and throughout lots lots of the parts of the country can lead to higher levels of segregation according to a lot of research and that's detrimental to kids uh, on the other hand there are a small but growing number of school districts that are using choice uh, accompanied by fairness guidelines to ensure that choice, promotes integration. So one example is Cambridge, Massachusetts, where for years they have been attempting to use choice and marry it to integration in a way that will will benefit all all, all students. So there are no neighborhood schools in Cambridge. Every school is a school of choice, and each has a distinctive uh, theme or or, uh, teaching approach, something to make it attractive. But then the school district uh, asks parents to rank choices and then honors them in a way that will promote socioeconomic and racial diversity. And they've been able to work it out so that about 90% of parents get one of their first couple of choices uh, and the schools are highly integrated by socioeconomic status and and race. So choice can be used to get beyond neighborhood segregation. So it, it, It can be very important. It just has to be... Uh, a system that has checks and balances and fairness guidelines that'll make sure it doesn't actually make things worse by segregating the students.
3: Yeah, and, and if I could just just briefly, within, within Baltimore City, choice has allowed, I think, parents to have a different set of options, particularly because... We have not been at the point, we're moving to that point, um, where we can guarantee that every neighborhood school is a high-quality school. And so so there really is this push-pull. And, you know, one of the things I've said is, you know, until I can make that guarantee... Um, and I agree with Rick, there has to be checks and balances, but there has to have to be checks and balances on magnet schools, quite frankly, because we you know we isolate charters. But let's be clear, public magnet schools do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think the real focus um, has to be, at least in my mind, I can't tell a parent, you must send your child <laughs> to an underperforming school in good conscience. And so I view our role as district leaders as making sure that there are, lots of high quality options um, for young people. But it, you know, again, we do have some of the the boundaries that, you know, that Rick mentioned here that don't make it like Delaware. But I think at least within our district, we actually have a couple of charter operators who have taken over. Some of our chronically underperforming schools. I'm thinking of one Frederick Elementary, and I was in Frederick Elementary uh, before we turned it over to a, a charter operator who's an in district operator, you know, not a national conglomerate or anything. And um, I went in before, and I went in and after, and I was almost tearing when um, a young man who had previously literally been running through the hallways, I come back about a year and a half later, and we had a you know we had a reading about quilting, and he. He was answering all the questions they went on a field trip after to the Reginald Lewis Museum to learn about the Ghee quilters you know African American uh, quilting community and so to me the fundamental question is within a climate of, of fairness you know we have a responsibility to, ha- to make sure families have high-quality options. And so, yeah, sure, we made that a charter. But I know that that young man and his family um, are better off. That baby is reading now
0: and wasn't before. And that, to me, is the is the ultimate goal. So... We've talked about reading instruction. We've talked about what's necessary for overall school improvement, integration, equity, fairness, political will. We've, we've we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything we missed? Is there anything any of you found notable or interesting that other educators, advocates, policymakers could take away from the example of Seaford?
2: I think one thing is that school boards need to understand that they have to be committed to the leader that they hired. They may not agree, but they need to give them to uh, give them a chance to try um, and support them in what they're doing. And I, I think that's critical. That sometimes school boards become involved in issues that really are not related to policy, but more in day-to-day business. And so. I think in Seaford, the fact that the board did support Dave and allowed him to do what he felt needed to be done in the best interest of students was uh, critical. I think also the whole emphasis on strong leadership and um, HR and school boards who make the final decision understand that it has to be more than just it's somebody's turn to be the leader of that school. Um, That do they have a body of work to show that they can lead? Do they have the evidence? Are they, as you said, Sonia, are they committed to working with the students in that school and the families in that school? And so I think um, making sure that we get the right person, as Jim Collins said, the right person in the right seat on the right bus, especially for for our schools.
1: Well, why don't I go ahead? I want to give you the last word or Sonia. on you. Um, So I, w- I will say that uh, I'm I'm very encouraged that uh, the integration and reading efforts in Seaford have resulted in in test score gains, uh, and I and I do think that both those strategies can be school improvement strategies. Uh, my my hero John King. Uh, uh, use some of his New York State money when he was commissioner there uh, for federal school improvement grant money to, to integrate schools as, as a strategy of, of increasing test scores. But what I want to watch uh, in Seaford is to see whether over time uh, we also graduate better citizens, uh, more tolerant kids who... Uh, know how to get along with students of, of different backgrounds. I've been talking about school integration for about 20 years, and uh, I used to talk almost exclusively about the NAEP scores and uh, achievement gains, all of which are important, uh, but 2016 was a big wake-up call for a lot of us that we need to devote a lot of attention to uh, making sure that, that uh, students uh, learn to get along with people of all different backgrounds. I mean, imagine if more white uh, Christian kids had had a chance to attend school with Mexican Americans, with Muslims, with African Americans. Um, uh, it's it's un- much less likely that a a demagogue could could go and vilify these populations uh, if students had 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 exposure to those of different backgrounds um, and uh, and knew them personally. Uh, then that type of strategy doesn't doesn't work. So so I want to watch um, uh, not only whether Seaford continues to improve academic achievement, but also whether whether uh, the community feels as though uh, they they've developed more well-rounded moral human beings.
0: I love that, but I don't know how we're going to measure it. I, I mean, I go immediately to measurement, and but but you're absolutely right. So, <laughs> but that uh, that was a random comment. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, well, and actually, Rick was saying I should go last. I thought with that one, maybe
3: Rick should have closed. But um, I, I will say this: that what's impressive to me about Seaford is the ability to courageously, and I really want it. Emphasize the the courage that it takes to do what they've done, um, but the to courageously pull a variety of the right high leverage, you know, um, levers. Right? These were what they focused on were the right things to focus on, and it really shows what the you know what the real significant gains can be when you do that. And and I love that we are, and I'm hopeful. God only knows why, but I am hopeful that we are entering a phase in uh, district leadership, school leadership, educational improvement and reform where we are all on, on all ends of the spectrum rejecting this notion that there's one thing. That turns around a school. And that that's what's so impressive to me is that Seaford very courageously said, The this is a small collection, but a powerful collection of the right levers. And those gains are are amazing. because um, like you, Karen, at the end of the day, I don't think test scores say everything, but my God, they tell us something. And so you know, like Rick, I hope it, you know, that there's a you know, there's a citizenry that that is birthed out of this too. But I just want to say again, I think it's amazing work that they've done and a real model of it's not one thing, it's the right
0: collection of things at the right time. This has been a really rich and wonderful conversation that I hope has been helpful for listeners. Many years ago, Harvard researcher Ronald Edmonds advised Other researchers to find schools with desired outcomes and then watch them to figure out what they did differently from other schools. That's what we're trying to do in this podcast, except instead of schools, we're looking at districts that are in some way getting good outcomes, either with high performance or rapid improvement. And what we're finding is exactly what Sonia just said it's complicated, it's not one thing, but there is a knowable collection of levers that can be used in order to improve. I hope you'll listen to the rest of the Extraordinary Districts podcast. I think you'll hear also similarly complex and interesting stories. In addition to the episode on Sea for Delaware and this panel discussion, season two features an episode on even more rural Lane, Oklahoma, and Valley Stream 30, New York and panel discussions on them as well, bringing together expert educators and others. Kicking off the whole second season, we had a panel discussion with Janice Jackson, CEO of Chicago Public Schools, Ronald Ferguson of Harvard University's Achievement Gap Initiative, and reading researcher Nell Duke of the University of Michigan. It was an amazing conversation and I hope you'll listen to that as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Extraordinary Districts. Please subscribe so you'll receive notice of future episodes and go to our website for lots of information about the districts we profile, the guests we have on our panels, and lots more. That's at www.edtrust.org slash Extraordinary Districts. Thank you to our sound engineer, Mike Patillo of Tonal Park, where we recorded this episode. And of course, thank you to Overdeck Family Foundation for making this season possible. This is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. See you next time.